Section twenty eight of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book eight. Containing about two days. Chapter one. A wonderful long chapter concerning the marvellous, being much the longest of all our introductory chapters. As we are now entering upon a book in which the course of our history will oblige us to relate some matters of a more strange and surprising kind than any which have hitherto occurred, it may not be amiss in the prolegomenous or introductory chapter to say something of that species of writing which is called the marvellous. To this we shall, as well for the sake of ourselves as of others, endeavour to set some certain bounds, and indeed nothing can be more necessary, as critics of different complexions are here apt to run into very different extremes, for while some are, with M. Dacier, ready to allow that the same thing which is impossible may yet be probable, others have so little historical or poetic faith that they believe nothing to be either possible or probable, the like to which hath not occurred to their own observation. First, then, I think it may very reasonably be required of every writer that he keeps within the bounds of possibility, and still remembers that what is not possible for man to perform, it is scarce possible for man to believe he did perform. This conviction perhaps gave birth to many stories of the ancient heathen deities, for most of them are of poetical origin. The poet, being desirous to indulge a wanton and extravagant imagination, took refuge in that power, of the extent of which his readers were no judges, or rather which they imagined to be infinite, and consequently they could not be shocked at any prodigies related of it. This hath been strongly urged in defence of Homer's miracles, and it is perhaps a defence not, as Mr. Pope would have it, because Ulysses told a set of foolish lies to the Phaeacians, who were a very dull nation, but because the poet himself wrote to heathens, to whom poetical fables were articles of faith. For my own part, I must confess, so compassionate is my temper, I wish Polypheme had confined himself to his milk diet, and preserved his eye. Nor could Ulysses be much more concerned than myself, when his companions were turned into swine by Circe, who showed, I think, afterwards, too much regard for man's flesh to be supposed capable of converting it into bacon. I wish, likewise, with all my heart, that Homer could have known the rule prescribed by Horace, to introduce supernatural agents as seldom as possible. We should not then have seen his gods coming on trivial errands, and often behaving themselves so as not only to forfeit all title to respect, but to become the objects of scorn and derision a conduct which must have shocked the credulity of a pious and sagacious heathen, and which could never have been defended, unless by agreeing with the supposition to which I have been sometimes almost inclined, that this most glorious poet, as he certainly was, had an intent to burlesque the superstitious faith of his own age and country. But I have rested too long on a doctrine which can be of no use to a Christian writer, for as he cannot introduce into his works any of that heavenly host which make a part of his creed, so is it horrid puerility to search the heathen theology for any of those deities who have been long since dethroned from their immortality. Lord Shaftesbury observes that nothing is more cold than the invocation of a muse by a modern. He might have added that nothing can be more absurd. A modern may with much more elegance invoke a ballad, as some have thought Homer did, or a mug of ale, with the author of Hudibras which latter may perhaps have inspired much more poetry, as well as prose, than all the liquors of Hippocrene or Helicon. The only supernatural agents which can in any manner be allowed to us moderns are ghosts, but of these I would advise an author to be extremely sparing. 
These are indeed like arsenic, and other dangerous drugs in physic, to be used with the utmost caution. Nor would I advise the introduction of them at all in those works, or by those authors, to which, or to whom, a horse-laugh in the reader would be any great prejudice or mortification. As for elves and fairies, and other such mummery, I purposely omit the mention of them, as I should be very unwilling to confine within any bounds those surprising imaginations for whose vast capacity the limits of human nature are too narrow, whose works are to be considered as a new creation, and who have, consequently, just right to do what they will with their own. Man, therefore, is the highest subject, unless on very extraordinary occasions indeed, which presents itself to the pen of our historian or of our poet, and, in relating his actions, great care is to be taken that we do not exceed the capacity of the agent we describe. Nor is possibility alone sufficient to justify us. We must keep likewise within the rules of probability. It is, I think, the opinion of Aristotle, or if not, it is the opinion of some wise man, whose authority will be as weighty when it is old, that it is no excuse for a poet who relates what is incredible, that the thing related is really a matter of fact. This may perhaps be allowed true with regard to poetry, but it may be thought impracticable to extend it to the historian, for he is obliged to record matters as he finds them, though they may be of so extraordinary a nature as will require no small degree of historical faith to swallow them. Such was the successless armament of Xerxes, described by Herodotus, or the successful expedition of Alexander, related by Arian. Such of later years was the victory of Agincourt, obtained by Harry V, or that of Narva, won by Charles Twelfth of Sweden. All which instances, the more we reflect on them, appear still the more astonishing. Such facts, however, as they occur in the thread of the story, nay, indeed, as they constitute the essential parts of it, the historian is not only justifiable in recording as they really happened, but indeed would be unpardonable should he omit or alter them. But there are other facts not of such consequence, nor so necessary, which, though ever so well attested, may nevertheless be sacrificed to oblivion in complacence to the scepticism of a reader. Such is that memorable story of the ghost of Georges Villiers, which might with more propriety have been made a present of to Dr. Drelincourt, to have kept the ghost of Mrs. Veal Company, at the head of his discourse upon death, than have been introduced into so solemn a work as the history of the rebellion. To say the truth, if the historian will confine himself to what really happened, and utterly reject any circumstance which, though never so well attested, he must be well assured is false, he will sometimes fall into the marvellous, but never into the incredible. He will often raise the wonder and surprise of his reader, but never that incredulous hatred mentioned by Horace. It is by falling into fiction, therefore, that we generally offend against this rule, of deserting probability, which the historian seldom, if ever, quits, till he forsakes his character and commences a writer of romance. In this, however, those historians who relate public transactions have the advantage of us who confine ourselves to scenes of private life. The credit of the former is by common notoriety supported for a long time, and public records, with the concurrent testimony of many authors, bear evidence to their truth in future ages. Thus, a Trajan and an Antoninus, and a Nero and a Caligula, have all met with the belief of posterity, and no one doubts but that men so very good and so very bad were once the masters of mankind. But we who deal in private character, who search into the most retired recesses, and draw forth examples of virtue and vice from holes and corners of the world, are in a more dangerous situation. As we have no public notoriety, no concurrent testimony, no records to support and corroborate what we deliver, 
It becomes us to keep within the limits not only of possibility, but of probability, too, and this more especially in painting what is greatly good and amiable. Knavery and folly, though never so exorbitant, will more easily meet with assent, for ill-nature adds great support and strength to faith. Thus we may, perhaps, with little danger, relate the history of Fisher, who, having long owed his bread to the generosity of Mr. Derby, and having one morning received a considerable bounty from his hands, yet, in order to possess himself of what remained in his friend's scrutor, concealed himself in a public office of the temple, through which there was a passage into Mr. Derby's chamber. Here he overheard Mr. Derby for many hours solacing himself at an entertainment which he that evening gave his friends, and to which Fisher had been invited. During all this time no tender, no grateful reflections arose to restrain his purpose, but when the poor gentleman had let his company out through the office, Fisher came suddenly from his lurking-place, and walking softly behind his friend into his chamber, discharged a pistol-ball into his head. This may be believed when the bones of Fisher are as rotten as his heart. Nay, perhaps it will be credited that the villain went two days afterwards with some young ladies to the play of Hamlet, and with an unaltered countenance heard one of the ladies, who little suspected how near she was to the person, cry out, "'Good God! if the man that murdered Mr. Derby was now present!' manifesting in this a more seared and callous conscience than even Nero himself, of whom we are told by Suetonius that the consciousness of his guilt after the death of his mother became immediately intolerable, and so continued. Nor could all the congratulations of the soldiers of the Senate and the people allay the horrors of his conscience. But now, on the other hand, should I tell my reader, that I had known a man whose penetrating genius had enabled him to raise a large fortune in a way where no beginning was chalked out to him, that he had done this with the most perfect preservation of his integrity, and not only without the least injustice or injury to any one individual person, but with the highest advantage to trade, and a vast increase of the public revenue, that he had expended one part of the income of this fortune in discovering a taste superior to most, by works where the highest dignity was united with the purest simplicity, and another part in displaying a degree of goodness superior to all men by acts of charity to objects whose only recommendations were their merits, or their wants that he was most industrious in searching after merit in distress, most eager to relieve it, and then as careful, perhaps too careful, to conceal what he had done, that his house, his furniture, his gardens, his table, his private hospitality, and his public beneficence, all denoted the mind from which they flowed, and were all intrinsically rich and noble, without tinsel or external ostentation, that he filled every relation in life with the most adequate virtue, that he was most piously religious to his creator, most zealously loyal to his sovereign, a most tender husband to his wife, a kind relation, a munificent patron, a warm and firm friend, an unknowing and cheerful companion, indulgent to his servants, hospitable to his neighbors, charitable to the poor, and benevolent to all mankind. Should I add to these the epithets of wise, brave, elegant, and indeed every other amiable epithet in our language, I might surely say, quis credit, Nemo Hercule, Nemo, vel duo vel Nemo. And yet I know a man who was all I have here described. But a single instance, and I really know not such another, is not sufficient to justify us while we are writing to thousands who have never heard of the person, nor of anything like him. Such rara aves should be remitted to the epitaph writer, or to some poet who may condescend to hitch him into a distich, or to slide him into a rhyme with an air of carelessness and neglect without giving any offence to the reader. In the last place, the action should be such as may not only be within the compass of human agency, and which human agents may probably be supposed to do, 
but they should be likely for the very actors and characters themselves to have performed. For what may be only wonderful and surprising in one man may become improbable or indeed impossible when related of another. This last requisite is what the dramatic critics call conversation of character, and it requires a very extraordinary degree of judgment and a most exact knowledge of human nature. It is admirably remarked by a most excellent writer that zeal can no more hurry a man to act in direct opposition to itself than a rapid stream can carry a boat against its own current. I will venture to say that for a man to act in direct contradiction to the dictates of his nature is, if not impossible, as improbable and as miraculous as anything which can well be conceived. Should the best parts of the story of Mr. Antoninus be ascribed to Nero, or should the worst incidents of Nero's life be imputed to Antoninus, what would be more shocking to belief than either instance? Whereas both these being related of their proper agent constitute the truly marvellous. Our modern authors of comedy have fallen almost universally into the error here hinted at. Their heroes generally are notorious rogues, and their heroines abandoned jades during the first four acts, but in the fifth the former become very worthy gentlemen, and the latter women of virtue and discretion. Nor is the writer often so kind as to give himself the least trouble to reconcile or account for this monstrous change and incongruity. There is indeed no other reason to be assigned for it than because the play is drawing to a conclusion as if it was no less natural in a rogue to repent in the last act of a play than in the last of his life, which we perceive to be generally the case at Tyburn, a place which might indeed close the scene of some comedies with much propriety, as the heroes in these are most commonly eminent for those very talents which not only bring men to the gallows, but enable them to make a heroic figure when they are there. Within these few restrictions, I think, every writer may be permitted to deal as much in the wonderful as he pleases. Nay, if he thus keeps within the rules of credibility, the more he can surprise the reader, the more he will engage his attention, and the more he will charm him. As a genius of the highest rank observes in his fifth chapter of the Bathos, the great art of all poetry is to mix truth with fiction, in order to join the credible with the surprising. For though every good author will confine himself within the bounds of probability, it is by no means necessary that his characters or his incidents should be trite, common, or vulgar such as happen in every street or in every house, or which may be met with in the home articles of a newspaper. Nor must he be inhibited from showing many persons and things, which may possibly have never fallen within the knowledge of great part of his readers. If the writer strictly observes the rules above mentioned, he hath discharged his part, and is then entitled to some faith from his reader, who is indeed guilty of critical infidelity if he disbelieves him. For want of a portion of such faith, I remember the character of a young lady of quality, which was condemned on the stage for being unnatural, by the unanimous voice of a very large assembly of clerks and apprentices, though it had the previous suffrages of many ladies of the first rank, one of whom, very eminent for her understanding, declared it was the picture of half the young people of her acquaintance. CHAPTER Two, IN WHICH THE LANDLADY PAYS A VISIT TO MR. JONES when Jones had taken leave of his friend the lieutenant, he endeavoured to close his eyes, but all in vain. His spirits were too lively and wakeful to be lulled to sleep. So having amused, or rather tormented himself, with the thoughts of his Sophia till it was open daylight, he called for some tea, upon which occasion my landlady herself vouchsafed to pay him a visit. This was indeed the first time she had seen him, or at least had taken any notice of him, but as the lieutenant had assured her that he was certainly some young gentleman of fashion, she now determined to show him all the respect in her power, for, to speak truly, this was one of those houses where gentlemen, to use the language of advertisements, meet with civil treatment for their money. 
She had no sooner begun to make his tea than she likewise began to discourse. "'La, sir,' said she, "'I think it is great pity that such a pretty young gentleman should undervalue himself so as to go about with these soldier fellows. They call themselves gentlemen, I warrant you, but as my first husband used to say, they should remember it is we that pay them. And to be sure it is very hard upon us to be obliged to pay them, and to keep them too, as we publicans are. I had twenty of them last night, besides officers. Nay, for matter of that, I had rather have the soldiers than officers, for nothing is ever good enough for those sparks, and I am sure, if you was to see the bills, "'La, sir, it is nothing. "'I have had less trouble, I warrant you, "'with a good squire's family, "'where we take forty or fifty shillings of a night, "'besides horses. "'And yet, I warrants me, "'there is narrow a one of those officer fellows "'but looks upon himself to be as good as arrow a squire "'of five hundred pounds a year. "'To be sure, it doth me good to hear their men "'run about after him, crying, "'Your honour and your honour. "'Mary come up with such honour, "'and an ordinary at a shilling a head.' "'Then there's such swearing among them. "'To be sure, it frightens me out of my wits. "'I thinks nothing can ever prosper with such wicked people. "'And here one of them has used you in so barbarous a manner. "'I thought, indeed, how well the rest would secure him, "'and they all hang together. "'For if you had been in danger of death, "'which I am glad to see you were not, "'it would have been all as one to such wicked people. "'They would have let the murderer go. "'Lord have mercy upon him. "'I would not have such a sin to answer for for the whole world.' But though you are likely, with the blessing, to recover, there is law for him yet, and if you will employ lawyer small, I darest be sworn he'll make the fellow fly the country for him, though perhaps he'll have fled the country before, for it is here to-day and gone to-morrow with such chaps. I hope, however, you will learn more wit for the future, and return back to your friends. I warrant they are all miserable for your loss, and if they was but to know what had happened, law my seeming, I would not for the world they should." "'Come, come, we know very well what all the matter is, "'but if one won't, another will. "'So pretty a gentleman need never want a lady. "'I am sure, if I was you, "'I would see the finest she that ever wore a head hanged "'before I would go for a soldier for her. "'Nay, don't blush so, for indeed he did to a violent degree. "'Why, you thought, sir, I knew nothing of the matter. "'I warrant you about Madame Sophia. "'How?' said Jones, starting up. "'Do you know my Sophia?' "'Do I? I am Mary,' cries the landlady. "'Many's the time hath she lain in this house.' "'With her aunt, I suppose,' says Jones. "'Why, there it is now,' cries the landlady. "'Ay, ay, ay. I know the old lady very well. "'And a sweet young creature is Madame Sophia. "'That's the truth on it.' "'A sweet creature,' cries Jones. "'Oh, heavens! "'Angels are painted fair to look like her. "'There's in her all that we believe of heaven, "'amazing brightness, purity and truth, "'eternal joy and everlasting love. "'And could I have ever imagined "'that you had known my Sophia?' "'I wish,' says the landlady, "'you knew half so much of her. "'What would you have given to have sat by her bedside? "'What a delicious neck she hath! "'Her lovely limbs have stretched themselves "'in that very bed you now lie in.' "'Here?' cries Jones. "'Hath Sophia ever laid here?' "'Ay, ay, here, there, in that very bed,' says the landlady, "'where I wish you had her this moment, "'and she may wish so, too, for anything I know to the contrary, "'for she hath mentioned your name to me.' "'Ha!' cries he. "'Did she ever mention her poor Jones?' "'You flatter me now. I can never believe so much.' "'Why, then,' answered she, "'as I hope to be saved, and may the devil fetch me if I speak a syllable more than the truth. I have heard her mention Mr. Jones, but in a civil and modest way I confess. Yet I could perceive she thought a great deal more than she said.' "'Oh, my dear woman,' cries Jones, "'her thoughts of me shall never be worthy of me. Oh, she is all gentleness, kindness, goodness. Why was such a rascal as I born ever to give her soft bosom a moment's uneasiness? Why am I cursed?' 
I, who would undergo all the plagues and miseries which any demon ever invented for mankind, to procure her any good. Nay, torture itself could not be misery to me, did I but know that she was happy. Why, look you there now, says the landlady. I told her you was a constant lover. But pray, madam, tell me when or where you knew anything of me, for I never was here before, nor do I remember ever to have seen you. Nor is it possible you should, answered she, for you was a little thing when I had you in my lap at the squire's. How, the squire's? says Jones. What, do you know that great and good Mr. Allworthy, then? Yes, Mary, do I, says she, who in the country doth not. The fame of his goodness, indeed, answered Jones, must have extended farther than this, but heaven only can know him, can know that benevolence which it copied from itself, and sent upon earth as its own pattern. Mankind are as ignorant of such divine goodness as they are unworthy of it, but none so unworthy of it as myself, I, who was raised by him to such a height, taken in, as you must well know, a poor base-born child, adopted by him and treated as his own son, to dare by my follies to disoblige him, to draw his vengeance upon me. Yes, I deserve it all, for I will never be so ungrateful as ever to think he hath done an act of injustice by me. No, I deserve to be turned out of doors as I am. And now, madam, says he, I believe you will not blame me for turning soldier, especially with such a fortune as this in my pocket, at which words he shook a purse, which had but very little in it, and which still appeared to the landlady to have less. My good landlady was, according to vulgar phrase, struck all of a heap by this relation. She answered coldly, that to be sure people were the best judges what was most proper for their circumstances. But hark, says she, I think I hear somebody call. Coming, coming, the devils and all our folk. Nobody hath any ears. I must go downstairs. If you want any more breakfast, the maid will come up. Coming! At which words, without taking any leave, she flung out of the room, for the lower sort of people are very tenacious of respect, and though they are contented to give this gratis to persons of quality, yet they never confer it upon those of their own order, without taking care to be well paid for their pains. CHAPTER Three, IN WHICH THE SURGEON MAKES HIS SECOND APPEARANCE Before we proceed any farther, that the reader may not be mistaken in imagining the landlady knew more than she did, nor surprised that she knew so much, it may be necessary to inform him that the lieutenant had acquainted her that the name of Sophia had been the occasion of the quarrel, and as for the rest of her knowledge, the sagacious reader will observe how she came by it in the preceding scene. Great curiosity was indeed mixed with her virtues, and she never willingly suffered any one to depart from her house without inquiring as much as possible into their names, families, and fortunes. She was no sooner gone than Jones, instead of animadverting on her behaviour, reflected that he was in the same bed which he was informed had held his dear Sophia. This occasioned a thousand fond and tender thoughts, which we would dwell longer upon, did we not consider that such kind of lovers will make a very inconsiderable part of our readers. In this situation the surgeon found him, when he came to dress his wound. The doctor, perceiving upon him examination that his pulse was disordered, and hearing that he had not slept, declared that he was in great danger, for he apprehended a fever was coming on, which he would have prevented by bleeding, but Jones would not submit, declaring he would lose no more blood. "'And, doctor,' says he, "'if you will be so kind only to dress my head, I have no doubt of being well in a day or two. "'I wish,' answered the surgeon, "'I could assure your being well in a month or two. "'Well, indeed. No, no, people are not so soon well of such contusions.' But, sir, I am not at this time of day to be instructed in my operations by a patient, and I insist on making a revulsion before I dress you. 
Jones persisted obstinately in his refusal, and the doctor at last yielded, telling him at the same time that he would not be answerable for the ill consequence, and hoped he would do him the justice to acknowledge that he had given him contrary advice, which the patient promised he would. The doctor retired into the kitchen, where, addressing himself to the landlady, he complained bitterly of the undutiful behaviour of his patient, who would not be blooded, though he was in a fever. "'It is an eating fever, then,' says the landlady, "'for he hath devoured two swinging buttered toasts this morning for breakfast.' "'Very likely,' says the doctor, "'I have known people eat in a fever. "'And it is very easily accounted for, "'because the acidity occasioned by the febrile matter "'may stimulate the nerves of the diaphragm, "'and thereby occasion a craving "'which will not be easily distinguishable from a natural appetite, "'but the aliment will not be concreted, "'nor assimilated into chyle, "'and so will corrode the vascular orifices, "'and thus will aggravate the febrific symptoms. "'Indeed, I think the gentleman in a very dangerous way, "'and if he is not blooded, I am afraid he will die.' "'Every man must die some time or another,' answered the good woman. "'It is no business of mine. "'I hope, doctor, you would not have me hold him while you bleed him. "'But hark ye, a word in your ear. "'I would advise you, before you proceed too far, "'to take care who is to be your paymaster.' "'Paymaster?' said the doctor, staring. "'Why, I've a gentleman under my hands, have I not?' "'I imagine so as well as you,' said the landlady. "'But as my first husband used to say, "'everything is not what it looks to be. "'He is an errant scrub, I assure you.' However, take no notice that I mentioned anything to you of the matter, but I think people in business oft always to let one another know such things. "'And have I suffered such a fellow as this,' cries the doctor, in a passion, to instruct me? "'Shall I hear my practice insulted by one who will not pay me? I am glad I have made this discovery in time. I will see now whether he will be blooded or no.' He then immediately went upstairs, and flinging open the door of the chamber with much violence, awaked poor Jones from a very sound nap, into which he had fallen, and, what was still worse, from a delicious dream concerning Sophia. "'Will you be blooded or no?' cries the doctor in a rage. "'I have told you my resolution already,' answered Jones, "'and I wish with all my heart you had taken my answer, "'for you have awaked me out of the sweetest sleep "'which I have ever had in my life.' "'Ay, ay,' cries the doctor, "'many a man hath dozed away his life. "'Sleep is not always good, no more than food. "'But remember, I demand of you for the last time, "'will you be blooded?' "'I answer you for the last time,' said Jones. "'I will not.' "'Then I wash my hands of you,' cries the doctor, "'and I desire you to pay me for the trouble I have had already. Two journeys at five shillings each, two dressings at five shillings more, "'and half a crown for phlebotomy.' "'I hope,' said Jones, "'you don't intend to leave me in this condition.' "'Indeed, but I shall,' said the other. "'Then,' said Jones, "'you have used me rascally, and I will not pay you a farthing.' "'Very well,' cries the doctor, "'the first loss is the best. "'What a pox did my landlady mean by sending for me to such vagabonds?' at which words he flung out of the room, and his patient, turning himself about, soon recovered his sleep, but his dream was unfortunately gone. End of section 28 Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on October twenty fifth, 2007